Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. On that paper I gave you, uh, now we're going to be studying scriptures uh, on defeating Calvinism with scripture. The Revelation passage I gave you in front of you, I gave you two translations. And I gave you those two translations on purpose so that you can see the New King James translation and then the ESV translation. I will say this, the ESV translation is highly Calvinistic. That Bible is highly Calvinistic, ESV. I do not recommend it for that reason because your notes... And the way it's interpreted will be interpreted in a Calvinistic way, as I'm going to point out to you with this particular passage. Okay, so notice this. (laughs) Look at the New King James Version, okay? All who dwell on the earth will worship him. It's talking about the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Notice the term from... That is the proper Greek interpretation. It should say from. And notice where the foundation of the world is placed in the text. That is how it's placed in the text in the Greek. Okay? Look at the ESV translation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Worship it or him? It should be him. Remember, Reformed theology doesn't have a good understanding of eschatology. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did I miss something? Did you see that? Do you see the sleight of hand? So they have put the term before instead of from. Before is not to be used. It is from the foundation of the world. And look where the foundation of the world is attributed to. It's attributed to what? Everyone. In the New King James, the phrase, the foundation of the world, is attributed to who? The Lamb. Do you see what's going on here? I do not recommend the ESV. That's why. That's a clear example of someone messing around with the text. So, trash that translation. It is a Calvinistic, covenantal reform translation, and they're monkeying around with the text. Okay? I just want to point that out. But see, let's then use the New King James Version. That's what we preach from and teach from. And I want you to understand how to understand this text from a non-Calvinist standpoint. So as you can see, in their wording, they believe that people's names are written in the Lamb's book before the foundation of the world was ever created. So these people were elected by God before they even existed, before they even knew how to even choose God. They were already chosen by God before creation. That's the Calvinistic view of election, and that's how they interpret this passage, right? Okay. The proper way to interpret this passage, obviously, is that the from the foundation of the world refers to the Lamb 
that was slain. So the program that God put in place and knew had to happen is that if he created mankind, mankind would fall, and therefore mankind would have to be redeemed. Therefore, the plan to have Jesus slain as the lamb, that plan was before even the creation of our world. He already knew he was going to do this, right? That's what the interpretation of the text should say. That's the obvious interpretation. But let's say they want to argue about that. And they say, well, that found, the, the, that term foundation of the world can float and uh, it can be used in concert for those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Okay, so let's just take that out. I don't think that's how you interpret it, but let's just take that interpretation out. So number one, we can't use the word before. You have to use the word from. That's the proper translation of that passage. So these people, apparently that it's talking to, who chose to worship the beasts, had not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Okay, so let's say the foundation of the world is them, okay? So these people have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So if I'm going to take that interpretation, and the proper way to interpret that would be something like this. Okay, so what it's saying is this, that the Lamb's book of life contains the names of everyone who is saved. Okay? From the foundation of the world. Now, when I state that, I'm saying that since creation, everyone who is saved from creation to now, or to the end of history, will be written in the Lamb's book of life, right? That's a proper interpretation. If you wanted to take that out as referring to the people, and those names that are not written in the Lamb's book of life are those who have not been saved. But what's happened is the Lamb's book of life has been in existence since the creation of man, and the names of those who are saved are added to it year after year, month after month, century after century, of those who are going to be saved, that are saved, that get saved. That would be how you interpret that passage if you attached from the foundation of the world, which is still non-Calvinistic. I don't have a problem with that. That would be logical. That anyone who's saved is put in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you're not saved, you're not going to be put in the Lamb's Book of Life. But it doesn't tell you that these people were saved before the foundation of the world. That's, that's not, it's not even allowing you to do that. So, that being the case, either way they want to argue it, they can't use the word before. And either way you argue it, it's either referring to Jesus, and which would make best sense of the passage, and that's how it's laid out in the Greek, or if you attach it to the people, well, yeah, that means people have been saved since the beginning of the world. What's the big deal with that? That's not even a Calvinist idea. We would all agree with that. So one extra thing to note this, that don't get confused with the Lamb's Book of Life versus the Book of Life. Those are two different books. The Book of Life starts out with every name of every person that is ever going to live. Okay? If you die without getting saved, you're blotted out of the book of life. You're no longer in that book. You never make it into the Lamb's book of life, but you're blotted out of the book of life. So your name starts out 
in the book of life. But if you don't get saved the day you die, it's blotted out. Okay. If you do get saved, your name remains in the book of life and your name is then put in the Lamb's book of life. So the Lamb's book of life encompasses those who get saved and then the book of life records those who were created and were saved. So you have two books. Don't ask me why there's two books. There's two books and they are distinct. You can never be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life but you can be blotted out of the book of life if you don't get saved. So the book of life is more related to all human beings that were created. The Lamb's book of life has to do with those who were saved. That's the emphasis there. And there's multiple books. There's other books, by the way, that's going to be recording your works and and how um, you're going to be judged on your rewards on that. Okay. Is that cool, everyone? Does that make sense? That's. That, but I'm telling you what, man. Don't think that some of these translations are not monkeying around. They are. They really are. The NIV is notorious for leaving things out. The NIV is a thought for thought, and they leave a lot of thoughts out. You want a word-for-word translation. I would recommend the best ones are the New King James or the NASB, New American Standard Bible, or the New King James Version. I like the New King James uh, just as a preference. But both translations, word for word, are good. Very good. Okay, let's go to the next one. Oh, in your handout, your, your other hand that you have, let's go down to John 17, 9. John 17, 9. And so this is a classic passage that Calvinists like to take apart and misuse, obviously. And on your paper, it just says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, generally speaking, a Calvinist will take that passage as a general statement and say that Jesus is only praying for the elect and he's not praying for unbelievers, for they are yours. And that's how they'll leave it. And you're looking at that and you think, okay, on first blush, that sounds right, but then you have to go to the context to understand who are them that he's praying for and who are who are, are are the fathers? Well, if you start reading in the context, the context will tell you who he's praying for. And so you go to John 17, but then you have to back up to John 16, and you start realizing, oh, I'm in the night before he's crucified area, and he's speaking with the disciples at Passover. So that's where you're at contextually. So he's only speaking to the 12 minus Judas, And so that's the context. And you can read the context in chapter 16, verse 29. His disciples said to him, See now, you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. But but by this, we, the apostles, believe that you came forth from God. So in chapter 16, obviously the context is this. We're in the uh, Passover. It's with the disciples. And there is no one else beyond that. So when you jump into chapter 17 of John, you're still in the upper room. You're with the 12 disciples minus Judas, so 11. And it's Jesus talking to the 11. That's no more. So when he states in John 17, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. 
he is speaking about the apostles, not about believers in general. And that is a fatal mistake that Calvinist makes. They refuses to take in the context. Isolate a text and make a pretext to make it say something it doesn't mean to say. So the idea is that the apostles were given to Jesus by the Father to do the ministry work there for three and a half years and then to start the early church, obviously. So this is what the statement is trying to say. And they are yours. They're the fathers, right? And this is why Jesus prays for them. And he continues on. He says, uh, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them or keep through your name those whom you have given me. That's the apostles, that they may be one as we are. And so he's trying to ask for unity for them, but protection and things of that nature. This is a pretty easy text, but the way they get around it is to isolate the text and ask, just pretend that you don't know the context. And then they can say, it's everybody, it's believers, it's all the elect, when he's only referring to disciples. And that's it. Does this passage have anything to do with salvation? None. It has to do with discipleship. It has to do with the apostles. That's it. Let's jump to Acts 16, 14 then on your handout. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay. So the Calvinists take this passage and say, aha, see, no one can believe unless God opens their heart. Really? Is that what the passage says? So that's why they believe that the person has to be regenerated first before they can believe, which we don't believe that. We believe you believe and then you're regenerated. The order, the order of salvation is backwards in Calvinism. Okay. But they're going to use a passage like this out of context and say, see, it says God opened her heart uh, so that she can believe what Paul said. Is that what opening the heart means? What does opening the heart mean, first of all? Is it synonymous with salvation? Did the Philippian jailer who asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Did Paul say, well, first, God has to open your heart and then you can believe. Then you can understand what I'm talking about. Notice how the phrase then Lydia could believe or understand what Paul said. They take it to mean that's why apologetics don't even, doesn't even work. Because how can you apologetically argue with somebody when they can't believe? So this is why to a Calvinist, apologetics are, are fruitless, are useless. Why learn it? Why learn, you know, how to apologetically defend the resurrection or defend creation or defend the Bible or whatever apologetically? It's useless to do that because God has to open their heart and then they can believe using some passage like this. What does it say about Lydia in your context? She's a worshiper of God. This is the female version of Cornelius. Cornelius was a God-fearer. What does that mean? When you find Lydia, she's out there worshiping the one true God. She's already believing in Yahweh. She's missing content. Let me give you an illustration. If you lived in the days of uh, the kings or whatever, King David, you only knew that portion of Revelation up to that point to King David. You didn't know anything past that. So whatever had been revealed to that point, you knew. And that was your content of information. 
But as time went on, prophets got more revelation, more revelation, and more revelation, and the content built and built on itself more about salvation, about Jesus, and getting more specific, right? And so what happened with people's knowledge is that they believed in God, but as they went along, they would increase in their content of their knowledge of salvation. It didn't mean that they weren't saved. It just meant that gaps in their knowledge were filled in. How does an Old Testament get saved if they have a murky view of Jesus? They don't know his name. They don't know all the specifics, but they know that there's a coming one that's coming and he's going to satisfy the wrath of God. He's going to make an end to sin through his own sacrifice. I don't know how all this is going to come about if you're living in Isaiah's day, but I know what Isaiah said. The suffering servant is coming, and one day he's going to set things right. That would be enough for you to be saved, that you were trusting in that. But now the content has changed, hasn't it? There's been more additional information. How did you get that information? Well, you got it, number one, from the New Testament, which is additional information. In Lydia's day, they didn't even have the New Testament, right? This is an Acts, man. All they have is the Old Testament. So... Is it very possible that Lydia is saved, just like Cornelius is saved, but they need additional information about the Messiah now that things have changed? Of course. And that's what you have going on. The idea of opening Lydia's heart does not indicate that God did that so she could be saved. He did that to her so she could understand what Paul is going to tell her about the Messiah. It will be Paul's duty to tell people, especially Gentiles, what Messiah has done. Because they didn't know it. So these people are their God-fearers, like Cornelius or Lydia. They worship God. They believe in Yahweh. But they don't have the content. They don't know. And so God's going to open their heart in order to understand further revelation. The passage has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with illumination. Lydia is being illuminated. But here's the caveat. Why is she being illuminated? Because it says what she is. She is a worshiper of God. To be a worshiper of God, obviously, is more than just being a believer She seeks God. She's a believer, and she's just not sitting on her laurels. She's seeking him. What happens when you seek God? Seek, and you will find. So a worshiper is not someone that just goes to church. It's someone that's seeking God. I want to know more. I want more information. So those who want more information about God, want to learn more about God, will be given that information, okay? Now, some of that information will sometimes be hard to conceive or hard to understand at first. Therefore, if the person's in a condition of seeking and then they reveal the truth, they sometimes won't won't understand the truth. Even though they want to know it, it sometimes won't connect. So God has to open their heart so they can understand and particularly about the Messiah, because what has happened in Lydia's mindset is that the first and second coming were put together in the Old Testament. 
you might have one verse about the first coming, and the next verse is right about the second coming. And the first thing Lydia's probably going to ask is, where is he and where is the kingdom? That would be the first thing on her mind. Well, if he's the Messiah, I believe he's the Messiah, where's the kingdom? And Paul is going to have to explain why there is a delay. So there's a big thing going on here that has to have God's help in illuminating this. Now, let me refer to another passage about our own illumination. This is Ephesians chapter 1, and this is verse 18. Uh, Let me back up. So Paul is saying this to the Ephesus church, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him. Verse 18. Basically, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Okay, so what Paul is stating, he's stating the the same kind of idea at the same idea. Uh, Sorry, that Lydia's having. You probably have heard the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. That's a reference to first, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. It's the opening of our hearts. And Paul is saying, I hope, I may you increase in your understanding, may you increase in your knowledge, and may your heart be opened so that basically you can understand the riches of glory of your inheritance. So, opening a believer's heart is a common occurrence that he does to believers who seek him and want to know more about him. He opens their heart to understand more revelation. So, this is why if you are seeking the deep things of God, the mature things of God, that you'll understand it. So when a new believer or an ignorant believer or a Laodicean believer comes into a church and they're used to milk and the pastor or the church is throwing out steaks, they can't consume it. It's like a baby that tries to chew a steak. It doesn't work. That baby doesn't even have teeth. So you feed a steak to a baby, he can't do anything with it, he doesn't understand it, he doesn't know how it's working because the baby is still on the bottle. That is the same idea as being enlightened by God and being uh, illuminated uh, or your heart being open to understand higher levels of learning about God and the Messiah and the Scriptures. So, the opposite is true. If you don't seek God, if you don't want to learn about Him, you won't know anything else other than what you have right now. You'll stay where you're at. And he will not open your heart because your attitude is not right. If you want to know about God, he'll, he will show you. He will reveal himself more in the scriptures. And you say, well, I read the Bible already. Yeah, I know that. But you, you got to dig down deep. You can spend years in one verse. That's how supernatural it is. But the only way you're going to understand it on a deeper level, he's got to open your heart to it. Okay? And so what is the condition? You have to be ready. You have to, you have to seek him. You have to want it. If you don't seek him, you're not going to know it. Anyway, as you can see, this has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with, uh, uh, you know, God has to open people's hearts. He does it all the time. He does it all the time. But it's mainly to believers. Now, if God opens the heart of an unbeliever, that is what we would call a pre-evangelism. So, like, you know, someone's witnessing to them and they're sharing who Jesus is, that they're a sinner, 
Can God open their heart? Yes, if that person is seeking the truth. But you know, you know, many times you've given the gospel to somebody and it, it just, they're blind. It falls on deaf ears because they're not seeking. And because they're not seeking, he's not going to open their heart. He will open their heart if they're ready. And that's what happens. But it's on them. God is not arbitrarily going through here. I'm opening that person's heart and opening that person's heart and opening that person so they can all be saved. No, no, he'll only open if the person wants it open. And then he can do that so they can understand. Okay, any questions on that one? Yes, go for it. Being what now? The heart is desperately wicked and who can understand it? Ah, that's, that is in the context of being led by your heart rather than being led by God. Because if you decide, I'm, you know, you, you hear this, the phrases in like movies, just follow your heart, that's what I do. <laughs> you ever heard those phrases and people say, I'm just going to follow my heart? Well, you can't follow your heart because you're, it's desperately wicked. It will lead you astray, right? So what, what happens with our hearts is it has to be, or the, the synonymous word is mind or heart, okay? Our mind has to do what? Or a heart has to be, transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in the scriptures, heart and mind are synonymous. And so the way you reform your heart is you illuminate it to the scriptures and you transform your heart or your mind by the scriptures. And it says, if you read the rest of that passage, so that you may know the will of God. Now, the idea then is we follow the scriptures, we follow God, we follow the Holy Spirit's lead and we try to do our best to conform our hearts to him, but ultimately we can't follow our hearts. We have to follow him. We want to conform our hearts to him, but if someone's going to rely on their heart, it's going to lead them into a ditch. That's that's the, the idea. And so that's kind of the, the context behind that. And you could have broadly apply it in a lot of other ways in the idea that uh, when people say that humans are generally good, no, it's saying that humans are generally bad because their hearts are wicked. So you can broaden that out to an application like that as well, that uh, no one's pure. Their hearts are all messed up. And the longer you live the more and without Christ or the longer you live without conforming to his image as a believer, the more problems you start having in your heart. You really do. It starts messing around with you. Let's see if anything else I want to do. One more, John 5, 21. It says on your paper, for just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. Okay, so the Calvinists are going to say, look, it shows you right there that God does an any, many, miny, mo. Catch a tiger by his toe. So he just, look, I'll save who I want to save. Who are you to question me? If I want to save that guy and that gal, I'm going to do it. If I want them to go to hell, I'm going to do it. Is that what that passage is saying? Because they think it is. That the son can just pick who he wants to save. Sorry, that's not what the system is about. That's not what God has set up. The system is totally different. There is no arbitrariness in God. If you read the passage in John 5.21, it's pretty obvious that in the context, he means something else. And let me give you the context real quick. So if you read that in John 5, 21, all you have to do is keep reading. And if you get to verse 24, it says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. There's your context. So when you read John 5.21, that the son gives life to anyone he wants, the caveat is in verse 24, and the son gives life to anyone he wants who believes in him. There it is. Now, that seems simple. Yeah, it does, isn't it? Now, why, why, do they, why are they making this so complicated? Why are they taking verses out of context and not reading the rest of the passage? Why? Again, why is that? Noah. Right. And that's where I think with the passages we have dealt with, like even this one, take, for instance, Acts 16 with Lydia had an open her heart. You would have to refer back to those other passages that show them that those passages that seem to support that they have to be regenerated before, you have to unpack that particular passage and show them that they're misunderstanding the passage. That That is not what the passage is saying, just like with Lydia. So they use Lydia as an example of you have to be regenerated first, which if you marry the passage to Ephesians 118, 1.18 interprets the passage for you. So it's analogy of Scripture. So that's what you would have to do with other passages. And here's my challenge to them on that particular issue. Show me one main and plain passage that says you have to be regenerated before you can believe. I dare them. I dare them. Because, Noah, they can't find it. It's by these these other, like, Lydia passages and things of that. There's not a main and plain because when you look at the main and plain passages, it says this, believe and you will be given everlasting life. Notice the order of salvation. Believe first, faith, you will be saved. They switch it. What happens when the moment you get saved? You are regenerated, right? That's the order. But they say regenerated first. So no, I would, I would say, for, number one, show me one passage that clearly states that. And then if they're going to pull up these other, other passages we've dealt with, like Lydia or something else, I can't remember off the top of my head. And what you're going to have to do is show them that's not what that's talking about. And then at that point, I pretty much already know what they're going to say about you. No, you're just not smart enough to understand this. And they're going to say, no, where did you get your degree at? I got mine at the Calvinist Institute of Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, and and I got a Ph.D. in um, Calvinism. Where did you get your degree? What I'm saying is they're going to do an ad hominem attack against you when you show them through scriptures that they're misinterpreting it. They have nowhere to go other than to attack you, which is a classic Calvinistic move. Oh, yeah. Oh, you guys are a bunch of Arminians. So, like, no. I mean, to say that there's only two camps in soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, is absolutely juvenile. If someone calls you an Arminian, then you're talking to an ignorant person. I'm sorry. They're just theologically ignorant. We are what's called traditionalists. We are called free grace. We are called provisionists. We have a mediated view of salvation, which means that we're not the extremes of Calvinism and Arminian. There is a biblical balance in understanding soteriology, and there are multitudes of different positions that are acceptable in the middle. But Arminianism and Calvinism are the extremes, and we are neither of them. But that's what they'll label you. Oh, you're just an Arminian. And the thing is, I can't believe you went there. You might as well just call me an unbeliever. I mean, I just, why would you even say that? 
If that's how ignorant they are, then I want you to understand who that's who you're dealing with. And I, I honestly, I don't know if it's worth even going any further than that. If they're going to label you an Arminian, if they're not, if they're not willing to, to look at the scripture and a debate with you and dialogue with you about the scripture, then don't waste your time. If they go on the attack personally, walk away. It's not worth it. They're, they're blockheads. They don't want to learn. So I just, I just tell you that because my interaction with Calvinists, it's not been good. It just hasn't been good. I, I, there's, there's very few that wanna, that wanna, like, realize that. Oh my gosh, I've interpreted this whole thing wrong. I, I don't understand it. Uh, that was me. I had to come to that. Um, I had to realize that. I had to wake up to that. And realize I'm misinterpreting passages. I don't know. Anyway, any questions before we go, Richard? I don't know either. I, I don't I, I don't understand a lot of it. All I know understand is Calvinism came from Manichaean Gnosticism and it's just flat out pagan fatalism. And I don't know how it got into Christianity, but it's all over the place now. And it controls the narrative in, in at least in American Christianity. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.